Uh, well, good morning. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I'm so thankful for this invitation to um, to preach uh, and be with you to learn about the Bible today. I think that um, this Martha Stearns Marshall, that's what we call it at, at uh, Baptist Women Ministry, the Martha, Martha Stearns Marshall month of February, where we encourage churches to have women in their pulpits to preach, is really an essential thing for helping um, our young girls and boys to see that God calls everybody to ministry, it's really important that they see it. Um, I grew up in a church where I never saw it, uh, and it probably should have been obvious I was called to ministry. I was like head of youth group, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> if I had been a boy, they would have said, you're going to be a minister, um, but I never seen it until I was, uh, had at least, I think, already graduated from college, until I even knew that was a possibility. Um, and what a different world I know my son, my older son, is growing up in. One time we had a conversation, and I said, would you want to be a minister? Do you remember that, Atticus? And he said, you know, you don't remember. He said, um, I'm not a girl, <laughs> uh, and I can't be a minister, right? Because at our church right now, we have all female ministers. Uh, so that's just a totally different kind of bubble to be growing up in. Um, so we had to have that conversation about how God calls men to ministry, too, um, and that we're all you know, equal in the, in the eyes of God. So thank you for having me here to, to widen that bubble of children and adults who see uh, women um, following the call of God. And uh, one more thing I'll say, I know Kep said we have pink eye in our house. I do not have pink eye, so if you do want to come up and see me at the end, I would love to see you as our, our littlest is at home, poor guy. Uh, of course, this is the morning to wake up with pink eye. Um, the topic is just perfect that Pastor Mark gave me. Um, loving ourselves. A great day for a woman to preach. We've had to learn a lot about this. Um, but I've also been on this journey of learning about that, especially over this past year. And one of the things that was so important to me in my journey was that song, No Longer Slaves. And so when I saw this morning that it was um, one of the songs we were going to sing, I mean, I have so many memories of listening to that song. And God did a lot of healing in me through that song. And so that just reminded me that this is supposed to happen, I'm supposed to be here, and that there is a word for you all this morning. So let's, let's pray together, and I'll begin. God, who loved us into being and who sustains us with your love every day, give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace what we are offered. Teach us to see ourselves as you see us and to love ourselves with the same love you shower over us. Amen. So let's begin with the scripture. Uh, you can follow along with me. This is from Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I imagine that you all probably have some familiarity with this passage, um, Jesus' summary of what the greatest commandments are, of how Jesus would summarize what it is as Christians that we need to be doing. The first is loving God. Um, the second is like the first, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is actually a quote from Leviticus, 
uh, which is in a huge long list of, of commands. This is not one that people maybe would have expected to hear. That first one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, is the Shema. I mean, the, they were reciting that one every day. They knew that one was important. This one comes in a long list of commands, and Jesus elevates it to this priority. And there's so many ways that he could have told people to care for their neighbors. And that's all over the Old Testament, to care for your neighbors. But he chose this line that reminds people to love your neighbors as yourself. But these two words, they don't give us a lot of specifics, right, about how we do that. Um, they do give us, it does give us one important sort of jumping off point that I wanted to, to start with. And that is that the love of others is connected to the love of self. They're not the same thing, but they are connected. Because you can't do one well if you don't do the other one. How you treat yourself is sort of a benchmark for the ways that you will treat other people, and vice versa. But what in the world does loving yourself look like? Love is such an abstract idea to even define, right? Um, but loving ourself, but this has been challenging for Christians to understand. We're a lot more comfortable with this Jesus commands to deny ourselves, and, and that's kind of the direction we've been going. But it's important to talk about what this self-love is. So before we look at what it is, I want to take a moment to talk about what it isn't, or maybe what's just not enough. Like what is common in our culture when we think about loving ourselves and how that doesn't quite get at um, what the Bible might tell us uh, is loving yourself. So there's this popular term right now that you may have heard of. Definitely if you work in the helping professions or if you're on Instagram or if you watch commercials, especially commercials geared for women, and it's this idea of self-care. How many of y'all have like heard this term? Self-care, self-care is so important, self-care. Okay, so some of us um, have heard it. Um, and it's become a real buzzword, at least in the circles that I run in, <laughs> um, talking about self-care. It's like basically anything you do that makes you happy is self-care, and therefore it's a really good idea, right? So um, it's used to do things like you need to get massages, right? Take care of yourself and uh, take your vacation days. That's really important. Um, don't push yourself too hard. Value yourself. Um, do, you know, do all of these things. And so I have this image I want to show you that I think really captures our idea right now in our culture of what self-care is and self-love. <laughs> yeah, have y'all seen this? Remember this show? <laughs> Parks and Rec, right? So treat yourself. Uh, treat yourself day. Um, that Tom and Donna came up with, you know, clothes, fragrances, massages, mimosas, treat yourself, right? So this is, this is the way that we often think about it. Like, we deserve good things, right? You deserve to take care of yourself. Um, and so now this idea of self-care has become, you know, in America, we easily take really good ideas and we turn them into these, like, consumerist ideas, right? So it's basically just buy more stuff and spend more money on yourself is what self-care looks like. Um, we've made it into, like, a luxury too, that most people can't afford, um, and it's, it's become kind of a marketing technique. Um, I want to show you another picture. This comes from the book, actually, that I just read, but I just found it hilarious that there's this, this is what the, one of the things the eggs, the egg did, was, you know, um, this quintessential, you know, face mask and cucumbers on the eyes. Uh, I don't really even know what that does, the cucumbers, but, um, you know, this is not quite enough. This is not quite going far enough, right? We want to take care of ourselves. It's not that that's not important. Um, but this is taking away the, the deep, 
radical self-love that needs to come underneath these kinds of actions. If we're going to value doing things for ourselves, which is good, um, it needs to come with that gospel love that's transformative. The idea of self-care is simply a group of actions that you might do because of self-love. But loving yourself is much more. It's a radical act of self-compassion. And that's really what I want to talk about is self-compassion. I mentioned that I, I've kind of been on a journey of learning about this myself this past year. About a year ago at this time, I was in a really bad place. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an open book, and so I just, I don't mind sharing this with you because I have seen a lot of transformation in my life, but I was in a really, really bad state emotionally, and I thought I was taking care of myself. I had been a trained chaplain. I knew all about self-care. We're really good at at least talking about self-care, um, and I remember telling my therapist, I have great self-esteem. I'm really confident. I'm taking care of myself. Uh, well, then why was I where I was? I thought that that was enough to make sure I was sleeping and making sure I was taking time off and all of those things. I was taking care of my physical needs, but I wasn't taking care of my emotional and my spiritual needs. And I thought that doing those things would be enough, but it wasn't. I needed to learn to embrace myself with the radical love of God. Love not dependent on how I perform, but on this fact alone. I am a human, I am a child of God, and therefore lovable and valuable. I needed to allow myself to be human, weak, limited, broken, not perfect, to feel my emotions, to make mistakes, and to tune out voices that were pulling me out of the embrace of God's grace. So here's the definition I'm working up with for loving yourself, Christian self-compassion. Accepting the love of God for yourself in the same way that you would extend it to others, or even better, in the way that Jesus extended it to others. Thinking of the way Jesus treated people and trying to treat yourself that way, which is a radical act in a world that tells us that we are not enough, or we're totally alone, or that we must produce in order to be worthy. I want to look at three things that I have found in the Bible that really teach us what self-compassion looks like. There's a lot more there, but we only have, you know, so much time. And I think that these are some of the most important things that you may not have realized or spoken about in the Bible. Uh, we have to read these stories kind of deeply to find them. So the first one is that self-compassion is not pride. It is radical humility. Jesus loved people well. I think we know that, right? But he didn't do it in a way that avoided hard truth or talking about people's failures. So his compassion was not about building self-esteem or telling everyone, you're fantastic, don't change a thing, you're the best, right? In encounters with people, Jesus saw them truthfully and realistically, but with great love. Um, and he had an amazing ability to help others embrace themselves before making change. So um, there's two stories that I find particularly striking to me about how Jesus dealt with people's weaknesses and helped them be truly humble before making change. And one of those is a woman caught in adultery from John 8. When the religious leaders bring her, I hope you know this story, uh, they bring her in front of um, 
I mean, out in public in front of everybody and say what she has done. And they're doing this to trap Jesus, to try to get him to um, either condemn her or let her off the hook, both of which, you know, would have gone against what he was about, at least what they thought he was about. Jesus did not say, this is not a big deal. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, we all make mistakes. Like, no problem. You guys are blowing this out of proportion. He didn't say, let's give her a chance to change. Let's see if she can do better. And then when she comes back, maybe we won't stone her. What did he do instead? He stopped. He paused. He looked down. He wrote in the sand. We have no idea what he wrote. But what he said is basically he named the human condition. He helped her and everyone in the crowd see that they were all in the same boat, that they were all sinners. So no one was able to condemn her or or cast that stone. And it's not until he sort of levels that playing field and says, yeah, you are a sinner. Every one of us is a sinner. Then he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Later in, in John, in John 13, Jesus is talking to Peter. And Peter is, um, you know, prone to hyperbole and overcommitment. And Peter says, like, I'm going to follow you to death. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, oh, really? You are going to lay down your life for me. The truth is that when the rooster, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Like, it's going to happen today. So he's pointing out weakness, right? He's, he's humbling him, pointing out his vulnerability, that he's not going to be able to carry through on his commitment. And the next line recorded in the gospel, I don't know if this is how the conversation went, but the juxtaposition to me is awesome. The next line is, do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Trust in God. Jesus didn't condemn Peter, even though he knew he'd make a huge mistake. He says this later to all of the disciples. You will all betray me tonight, but let's keep doing what we're doing. I mean, then he he continues to love them. He continues to include them. He doesn't send them away and look for new people. He knows that they are vulnerable, they are human, they are weak, they will make mistakes. So I encourage you to think about and maybe discuss this if you're in a small group this week, what would it look like to turn that compassion for human weakness that Jesus shows towards yourself? How would that change your inner dialogue, the way that you talk to yourself? And if you modeled it after how Jesus talks to the people he loves. Because many of us think if we truly accept ourselves with no conditions that we're going to become these like lazy, unproductive people. But it turns out that true acceptance of ourselves is actually a better motivator for change than fear or shame or condemnation. So in this this first point, self-compassion is saying, I am weak and I am broken, but I am immensely lovable. Two, self-compassion is welcoming the experience of being human and allowing our emotions to be present. Um, it might be tough for us to own this, but our culture definitely prizes uh, stoicism and keeping it together um, and productivity, despite how you're feeling, uh, over being vulnerable. And I want to explain a way that I've seen this in ministry. 
I hear grieving people and chronically ill people say regularly things to me like, God won't give me more than I can handle, or everything happens for a reason. And they usually say these things to me directly after they have broken down in tears and they feel very vulnerable, or um, they have let on the depth of their despair and um, they want to show me that they really are a person of faith, even though they're really, really hurting. But what I see is, is people trying to recover out of deep emotions, trying to perk themselves up. And those might be things that we believe. I'm not trying to, to take those beliefs away. But when we use them, when I see people using them, it's usually because they think, I'm not supposed to be this sad. I'm not supposed to be this scared. I'm not supposed to be this worried about my health. I am supposed to believe that God will take this and, and make it into something wonderful, and that's what I need to be declaring right now. We don't think we're allowed to be truly sad, angry, or whatever emotion it is that you may struggle with, but um, the truth is that uh, Jesus allows for this, and there's this awesome verse that you may know um, that I want to talk about for a second, if we'll put that up. Um, it's that, this verse, and what is this what does this mean beyond being the answer to a really important Bible trivia question that you might come across, which is, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept, but it's much more than that. Um, it, is, it is a time where we see, you know, the creator of the universe in human form showing human emotion. Um, why is this important? Why is it important? You know, Jesus is, is crying here as the result of the death of Lazarus. So I want to actually read to you John eleven thirty three 33 through 36, that, so you have a little more context, in case you're not familiar with this story. Uh, it says, when Jesus saw her, which is Mary, remember, if you remember Mary and Martha, they're the sisters of Lazarus, Lazarus, who has died. So when Mary reaches the place where Jesus was and sees him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus knew he was going to raise up Lazarus. Like, I mean, Jesus knew that like, this wasn't going to last very long, that in a, five minutes he was going to call Lazarus out and he was going to be raised from the dead. He still took time to grieve. He still took time to say, you know, to, to show that he was feeling something very deeply and that he was moved by the, the grief of all the people around him. He didn't skip ahead and say, um, all y'all stop this morning stuff. I'm about to do a miracle. He knew that was going to happen. And he even says, this is going to be an awesome way for me to show God's glory. But he still embraced um, that, that emotion and that, that sadness. Um, and so we know, we know that God works things together for good. That's one of our, I think, our deepest beliefs. That's one of mine. But we don't have to let that invalidate the things that we feel in times of distress. Self-compassion is embracing our hardest emotions and allowing them to be present. You might think this is tougher for men, but I really think it's more um, that we may have different emotions that we struggle with. So, you know, I'd venture to say that um, men may have a harder time embracing their sadness and showing it, and women may have a harder time embracing their anger and showing it. So 
you don't have to say, oh, it's only about crying. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not only about crying. Um, it's about feeling human emotion and being okay with it. Lastly, self-compassion is a quiet but radical act of choosing to which voices we will listen. We are bombarded by voices all around us. We're constantly reading, you know, what experts say about this and what experts say about that, what our friends think about this. Everybody's opinion, right, is constantly in our face and in our mind. Self-compassion means choosing what voices we let form us. So let's look briefly at how Jesus did this in the first chapter of Mark. Jesus in Mark hears so many voices and opinions about who he's supposed to be, what his mission is supposed to look like. They're all, people are always trying to set the course for him in Mark. They share his identity when he tells them not to. They tell people they've been healed even when he asks them to keep quiet. Um, all of these things are happening that are trying to take him a different route. But he practices discernment and he knows which voices to heed. And so in, in Mark, he's teaching for the first time. It's like his first sermon in the synagogue. And in the middle of it, um, a man with an evil spirit stands up and starts screaming. Thankfully, um, that was not my first experience preaching. Because, I mean, what do you do? You're preaching. Someone stands up in the room and starts screaming at you. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, these declarations are actually pretty much true, right? The evil spirit is saying something true, but the intent is wrong. The intent is to try to disrupt what's happening and change what's happening. And Jesus simply says, be quiet. Come out. He shuts down this loud and angry voice, questioning his ministry and his identity. He knows that some voices are not worth listening to. And it's those voices, I believe, that he was trying to shut out when he would spend time alone with God in lonely places. That maybe he was tuning out of all those other voices and trying to tune in to the voice of God. I bet he often repeated to himself another voice that came from heaven at the very beginning of Mark and his baptism. The most important voice in his life. God the Father saying, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. If we believe that in Jesus' sacrifice and in Jesus' incarnation and death and resurrection, that we become children of God, just like Jesus, that he's the firstborn of all of these regenerated people, then we can take those words for ourselves too. That we are God's children, that God loves us, that God is pleased with us because when God looks at us, God sees Jesus. So self-compassion means being able to discern those voices around us who are not speaking truth and to choose to give time to what Jesus says of us, not what others say. Self-compassion leads us outward, and you'll be talking about that next week. That once we learn to embrace ourselves, to embrace our own humanity, then we can embrace others. If we can't accept our own weaknesses, we will not have space for the weaknesses of others. If we cannot allow ourselves to feel tough emotions, we will not be comfortable with other people's tough emotions. 
which is an important part of loving other people. If we cannot accept love without conditions, we will not be able to give it. And so this week, I truly hope for each of you that you will practice giving yourself this gift of compassion. That's one of the gifts that Jesus gives us, that God gives us. One of the greatest gifts is to be loved despite our weakness and our brokenness.